If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Review. Did you know that the seemingly bucolic Ploughman's Lunch actually came about because of a simple marketing ploy? Or that turnips were once thought to be an aphrodisiac. In today's episode, Penn Vogler takes Lauren Good on a culinary journey through Britain's history, exploring moments when food was at the centre of social change and upheaval. Hi, Penn. Thanks so much for joining me on the History Extra podcast today. Oh, Lauren, so nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. We're talking about your new book, Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain. However, this isn't the first book you've written on the history of food. What led you to choose this as your topic of research? That's a really interesting question. I've written about Dickens and food. I've written about Jane Austen and food. And my last book was about food and social class or status in Britain. And one of the things that really struck me in doing the research there was just how radical people's lives change during the enclosures when land that they had become to depend on for grazing a cow or a sheep or, you know, letting pigs kind of rootle around in woodland. The enclosures meant that that land was no longer available to them and it meant their whole system of domestic economy was just devastated, could be devastated overnight. And I found that fascinating and disturbing and it was the sort of heart of this book, this book stuffed. And what I wanted to do was figure out what happened in that time. And so if people's whole kind of domestic economy changed, did somebody else take responsibility for them? So the person who owned the land and was enclosing it, so to make it not uh, available for common use anymore for us what we're now commoners. So you and I are commoners and we have a house of commons because we all used to have access to common land together. And I wanted to know whether people, when they lost that access to common land, whether somebody else took responsibility for feeding them. And it seemed like a really germane question, not just at that period of time, it was a long period of time, three or 400 years, but to all sorts of other experiences we've had. We went into the pandemic and the same question seemed really relevant about kids, about feeding kids. If you go into wartime, you have to think about how you feed your soldiers. Whenever there's a big area of social change or big economic crisis, that, you know, cost of living crisis, the same question came up over and over again. And you mentioned some quintessential British food throughout the book, one of which is the ploughman's lunch. What are the origins of this? 
Oh, I know. It, it sounds so lovely and kind of bucolic and ancient, and it really isn't. <laughs> so cheese, the kind of the central plank, as it were, as a ploughman's lunch, has had a very, very checkered history. And it seems very difficult for governments and farmers to kind of work together in tandem so that farmers have a market for milk and they have a market for cheese. It seems almost impossible. So it seems that when milk is expensive or, or there's a kind of ready market for milk cheese kind of falls off the bench and the other way around and at the moment we have a very depressed market for milk milk is very cheap and cheese therefore we've got a big you know a big kind of renaissance in cheese but in if you look in the kind of 50s or 60s that looked incredibly different the second world war rationing had sort of almost done for cheese and people worried that the kind of popular taste for sort of good old strong tasting cheddar and Cheshire in particular had just disappeared that nobody would ever want to eat it again and actually the ploughman's lunch came out of a sort of marketing idea in the sort of 60s and 70s from the sort of cheese marketing boards or whatever they were at the time the cheese bureau to get people to eat more cheese in pubs with some pickle and beer and bread and all the rest of it. And it's quite funny because actually it was a way to try and shift some of this. They, people started making much more kind of acidic, stronger cheese for sort of commercial uses. And it seemed like a good way of making people eat it. So the Plowman's Lunch, which we think is ancient, is a bit of a marketing ploy. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. And another quintessential British food that you talk about is the roast dinner, which many of us enjoy on a Sunday, especially when it's as cold and wet as it is at the moment. How did it come about and evolve as history went on? Yeah, that's a good question. So it really depends who you are. In Britain, we have, and Britain, I'm sort of talking in its kind of broadest sense, and of course that's looked very different over the centuries, but we're pretty keen on our roast meat. We're very proud of our beef. You know, sheep farming has been very much part of our history. And so having roast meat seems a very kind of British, English, Welsh, Scottish, sometimes Irish thing to do. And so that has a very long history. You know, Shakespeare talked about beef eating Brits. And so it becoming a kind of roast dinner for everybody was a move when the standards of living for people started to go up and beef became a little bit more accessible. And that's particularly when we started getting imports, you know, from Australia or from Brazil. So it evolved, it became more accessible, but it's still expensive. And so particularly in places like Yorkshire, you start developing things like the Yorkshire pudding. And I grew up in Yorkshire and I remember as a child learning that the Yorkshire pudding was invented to fill up the kids so like the man of the house could have the roast beef. And I was really shocked as a child because I thought children are the most important thing. You know, how can they be so considered so unimportant that they just get the padding? But of course, that was a kind of real issue for poorer people, for urban people, for people in cities. Mums had to figure out how to kind of fill the kids up 
with some padding, some bread, some Yorkshire pudding, any kind of pudding. And the man of the house would mostly get the meat. Another staple that many of us will associate with home is tea. How did we reach the point where the drinking of tea became so embedded in our daily routines? It's really extraordinary, isn't it? I have to admit my slight addiction to tea. You know, tea is the thing that lifts you up, it rewards you, it keeps you going. It's had an amazing impact because it has an ability to turn a cold meal into a hot one. And so for poor people who might just have a meal of bread, cheese, ham or whatever, having tea turns that into what feels like a hot meal and it gives you a bit of a caffeinated lift at the same time. And then at the upper end of society... Tea is the social thing. It's the thing that brings people together, particularly women together around the tea table. And this was very interesting. One of my chapters is on the English look at the Boston Tea Party and also what happened in the 13 colonies when American people were asked to boycott tea because they, they were saying no taxation without representation. It was actually quite a complicated subject. And it was fine for the men because they would go off to the pub, but the women, their social lives revolved around tea. And that was actually quite a big thing to ask them to do to change what they were drinking because they copied the same British habits of tea drinking and chatting. During your research of all the different foods you cover in your book, what food had the most change in attitudes? I'd probably give you two answers, if I may, actually. One was turnips, which were fascinating, because before people started feeding turnips to animals, and turnips are kind of drove part of that agricultural revolution, you know, that made us this kind of big, beefy, meat-eating nation. Turnips were viewed as a sort of... They were <laughs> viewed as a sort of Viagra for people. They were supposed to... I'm putting this in inverted commas, augmented the seed of man. And so it was the idea that turnips would make you kind of virile and, and healthy. That was in the sort of 16th century. And then, of course, they just became fodder, you know. I went to my local farmer's market and I said, do you have turnips? She went, oh, my goodness, nobody's ever asked me for turnips. She said, I come from Lincolnshire. I see them growing in the field next to me, but they're just for the animals. We don't eat them. And so I've got this sort of revived the turnip <laughs> campaign going along it's got like two members <laughs> so I'd say that's gone from sort of having some status to having almost no status and the opposite one in a funny kind of way is strawberries because strawberries were so it's not that they didn't have status they've all had status but they were so tiny they had a six-week growing season and you a few people might enjoy them you know you might enjoy them with cream or something somebody describes them as a rural man's banquet and I love that it's got to be a rural man's because if you're living in a city there's no way you're ever going to see a strawberry we're talking about the 16th 17th century here and of course now strawberries in the strawberry season in the summer might make more money for a supermarket than bread or milk even they're just enormous and become the kind of fruity lure that gets us into the supermarket and supermarkets have kind of competitions about which one tastes the best and all the rest of it and so they've become an enormous thanks in large part to some incredibly dedicated and talented strawberry growers who have a lot of pressure put on them by the supermarket to kind of make the perfect berry that's perfectly ripe, perfectly sweet, perfectly juicy, doesn't squash when it's traveling. You know, all these things that 20 or 30 years ago, 
strawberry goes with said actually it's almost impossible to get that in one berry but somehow they've managed it and they, they've become like I say the sort of poster child of the supermarkets for us today. Your book is split into sections, two of which are before and after enclosures, which you discussed earlier. What effects did the enclosing of land have on the food that we ate? I think we still feel the effect of it today, actually, because there's so much worry at the moment about the quality of the food we eat, about how it's industrially processed. And I think that dates back to the enclosures because people lost that ability to look after themselves, to feed themselves on the land. They've lost the kind of contact with the land. People didn't have small holdings any longer. And a lot of people went to the cities. And so we became an industrialised population. And it's not that surprising that an industrial population takes readily to industrial food. So I think that that big disconnect comes about from our very urban history. Another impact you mention is the effects of Britain's military exploits. What effect did these have on our kitchens? Oh, I mean, enormous. It's both our military exploits, but particularly our colonising exploits. And from the, I'd say from about the early 19th century, we stopped being self-sufficient. And so at least half of our food, sometimes more, sometimes 60% of our food comes from imports. And those are all directly related to our colonising and our kind of military exploits. And so it affects what we eat as well, the kind of amount of food that gets imported. So, for example, if you look at our our exportation in the Caribbean, uh, the kind of sugar plantations, and how much sugar we now eat as a nation is directly related to those times when the government's role in promoting sugar was really just to keep the sugar planters happy. The sugar planters were so powerful, even though they were there in the Caribbean and, you know, not in Britain. The government wanted to keep them happy. And so all, you know, so sugar just kind of flooded into Britain. And that makes us one of the kind of top sugar consuming nations in the world, which is not great for our teeth or our health to this day. And your mention of sugar is so interesting in the book because you really illuminate our reliance on imports, which foodstuffs many really associate with home and the humble kitchen, as you call it in the book, relied on the importation of goods for their inception. Well, if you think about what many people, not everybody will have for Christmas, the turkey comes from America. Brussels sprouts probably come from Brussels, original kind of northern Europe. But if you look at the puddings, particularly sugar, we just talked about all the currants, the raisins, the sultanas, obviously not grown in Britain, and are a huge trading empire. And our heft on the world stage has made things like those, dried fruit, oranges, lemons, lots of spices, of course, has made those feel like they're part of our culinary our baking traditions if you look down the west coast of britain particularly where near to a lot of the ports that's where a lot of our very fruity breads barabrith eccles cakes and chorleywood cakes and all the rest of it a lot of them are from those west coast areas because that's where the dark sugar and the dried fruit and the spices all of those came in first and people would put them on their backs and or in barrows or carts or something and take them to the nearest towns and villages and cities. 
And you discuss the disconnect we have with our food today in the book. We don't need to see or understand where our food comes from. We go to the supermarket and it's there waiting for us, neatly packaged. Was the move towards this disconnect a gradual or quite a sudden process? I think it goes back again to the enclosures that we were talking about. The enclosures in Britain, in Scotland, it was the clearances. I think in Ireland, it was very much around the Great Famine in the 1840s, you know, when people just couldn't exist on the land any longer because of the potato blight. And I'm, Wales, the way that the law worked, the enclosures worked the same in Wales as they did in England. So in different parts of the British Isles, it would have begun and carried on in different ways. I mean, the the first Enclosure Act in Britain was about 1604, and they went on for, you know, over 300 years. Like I say, the clearances in Scotland were much more gradual, and they probably happened in the borders in Scotland without much attention being brought to them. But when you have the clearances in the 19th century, it was much more brutal and much more obvious to people than what was going on. Yeah, so I think in different places in, in Britain... It was triggered by different sort of attitudes, but also by different kind of legal systems. So, yes, I think it was a long, gradual process. And, of course, much of the British public don't just consume bought food from supermarkets and eat it inside their homes. Many enjoy the luxury of eating in pubs or restaurants. Can you please explain to our listeners how this practice of visiting a restaurant speaks to a communal history? It's interesting because we've had different attitudes to who should eat in publicly, going right back to, well, probably back to Anglo-Saxon times, not many records, but of course we do have records from medieval times. And one of the things that really struck me, was really interesting, was that the idea of hospitality really changed after the plague, after the end of the 14th century, for two reasons. One is, before then, there was an idea that if somebody walked up to your door and asked for hospitality, you would give it to them. And if you were wealthy and had a castle and all the rest of it, then that was kind of your job. Although there was a lot of kind of kickback against it. People didn't always like the idea. But in the plague, so two things might happen. That person coming up to the door might have the plague. They might bring the plague into your house. But also, working people after the plague, were on the move and on the make, because whole villages might be destroyed by the plague. And the the sort of social restrictions that stopped people from leaving their village. So sometimes in the past, you'd have to get permission from your laird to go anywhere, even if you had somewhere to go. That sort of begins to break down. And so there are many more people moving around the countryside. And our what we'd now call our hospitality industry kind of really dates to that moment when there's a lot more people moving around and not all of them have got friends in high places who will give them, you know, some roast meat or whatever. And so people have to start paying for beer and bread or whatever it is. And that's where, so you get the Canterbury Tales, for example, by Chaucer. You can see that that hospitality industry is becoming really embedded in society at the time. And a quote pulled from your book is that in this century, we are rediscovering the importance of food security in the event of a crisis. And this is something you touched on a little earlier. You mentioned how scarce our supermarkets would look in the event of a full-scale war. In light of this observation, what do you think the future of our food will look like? Well, Lauren, that's the kind of million-dollar question, isn't it? Because I think 
it's in our hands a lot, you know, not enough. I mean, you know, there is a huge amount of vested interest, but we are quite food insecure as a nation. About half our calories are imported. And obviously, if there was a full-scale war, you know, the government would have to figure out what to do. You know, would you have rationing like we had in the Second World War? And it's really worth remembering that in the First World War, the government's really ideologically opposed to rationing. And there were no plans to do it. They really didn't want to do it. And there were queues and queues and queues. And the queues got longer and longer and longer. And eventually they introduced it, but too late. And they didn't want to make that mistake again in the Second World War. So even in the 30s, when, you know, the time was the times were looking quite choppy there were provisions put in place for rationing and so when it was brought in it was much smoother it was seen as quite fair most people accepted it and it actually carried on for quite a long time after the war as well I think the last until about 1954 so you know if we had a full-scale war you know the government would have to figure out how would have to get involved you know like it didn't in the pandemic for example in the pandemic when there wasn't food on the supermarket shelves it was up to the supermarkets to decide who got so many packets of pasta or you know or when there was a freeze and the fruit, fruit and vegetables weren't on our shelves earlier this year again the supermarkets all the greengrocers but mostly the supermarkets have to decide who gets how many peppers and how many tomatoes and all the rest of it on the whole governments don't want to be involved in what people eat the government does not want to come into your kitchen and tell you to eat a salad rather than whatever it is you're eating and so on the whole governments become involved when it starts to be not just about the individual and their choices and their diet but about the whole nation's health and so that's happened in the past. If you think about, for example, the adulteration crisis in the 19th century, and this was when, it, if you lived in a city in particular, it was almost impossible to buy food that hadn't been adulterated, that hadn't been bulked out. So if it's bread, it had been bulked out with aluminium salts or plaster of Paris even. I mean, it was slightly crazy to be, you know, to be cheaper. And it might have been primped up. So vinegar was kind of watered down and pepped up with some sulfuric acid because that was cheap, cheaper even than vinegar. Everything in the 19th century was almost impossible to buy food that wasn't adulterated. And of course, the cheaper your food was, the more adulterated it was. So if you were poor, you were probably eating all kinds of rubbish. And if it wasn't downright toxic, then it was just had no nutrients in it. And it was clearly becoming a massive problem. And what happened to solve it, what made the government at last get involved, was a campaign by medics, by The Lancet, the doctor's paper, by scientists, to show all the problems of adulterated food. And I think what happened is the government realised that what they wanted was a big, healthy population to work you know, they want, their, they want their workers and that they were not having it because the food was so badly adulterated. People's health was really beginning to suffer from it. And that's not good for governments or for any nation's security or economy. And so that was about economy. Sometimes it's much more deliberately attuned to security. After the Second Boer War, there was a report by the army that said that a lot of the recruits from private schools or what we'd now call public schools they were much healthier they were five inches taller 
than kids who'd been educated in state schools. And the kids in state schools, they had dental caries, they might have had rickets, they had terrible health. And it became a complete kind of cause celebre. Everybody was kind of panicking and going, oh, the British race is, you know, disintegrating. But it did make the government realise that actually it's not good for your nation's security to have a nation that is not healthy. It's not well enough to fight for you. And of course, we would question now about the idea of feeding kids just so they can go off to war and fight for them. But the idea of feeding kids so they're healthy is probably one that most people would get behind. And directly out of that report, that Boer War report, people started feeding kids school dinners, free school dinners paid for by the local education authorities. And that's because the government changed the rules to make that legal. So that's often when the government gets involved, either when they're forced to do it by public opinion, or they see that actually it's not in the national interest to have a population who's not healthy, it's expensive to care for them from the now what we call the NHS, and also they're not well enough to kind of generate both economically and militarily if you do go to war. That was Penn Vogler, the author of Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain which is out now, published by Atlantic Books. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer-Hardy.